You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 2, History. It's really difficult to write about feminism in Canada without writing about the history of it. And really, that's kind of the most common way in which feminism is written about. There's usually some sort of deep connection to something that's happened in the past. And there aren't very many books that try to talk just about the present. And that, that was the hole that I was hoping to fill with Take Back the Fight. But I also realized very quickly just how difficult it would be to write a book like this without spending serious time on talking about the history, because the history of the feminist movement informs, deeply informs exactly how things evolved in the last two decades and then why they are the way they are now. You know, we, we live in this moment uh, that that feels like it's completely free of history, that there's no connection between what's happening today and what has come before it. And certainly with the feminist movement to try and tie uh, a thread from the first waves of feminism, the second waves of feminism, even to, to the third waves of feminism, and then to whatever it is we have today, it's it's not that obvious. And it's it's not that easy. And then, of course, the question becomes, and why is it even helpful? When I was thinking through writing a book about organizing and the things that come with organizing, what we what we get out of organizing, so debates and building knowledge and building leadership and all the things that the rest of the book talks about, history didn't really come into play. That, those are more like social movement theory and, and practice type conversations, except every time I started thinking about feminism – I obviously was brought back into the past and I was brought back into the past in in, in many different ways, helping to uh, explain why white feminism has been so strong in Canada, the the historical role that women have played in politics or the historical role that the struggle for, 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 for women's rights has played in politics. And I was like really struggling between this being a history book and this not being a history book. And and it's, you know, so much about feminism in Canada is written from that historical perspective. But I'm not a historian. It's not the kind of book that I wanted to write. But I knew I had to root this book, at least the first chapter in, in, in the history of, of Canada, in the history of the construction of Canada, the construction of rights in Canada, and where feminists were located along that path. So the first chapter is where I talk about history. And it's a very short historical overview. I'm sure historians would look at it and probably be like, oh, Nora, we're going to give you a B (laughs) or something. Because I trace feminism uh, very, very quickly uh, over, you know, several hundred years. It's really important to note that the chapter title is not just The History of Feminism Canada. It's called White Supremacy and the First Feminist Waves in Canada. 
And and racism is a central figure in this chapter. Racism becomes a character in this chapter in in the ways that feminist white feminists operate around against ignore uphold support justify racism and you know in a country where we celebrate the famous five as being the 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 women who fought for our right to vote and fought for our right to be people that that whole question of racism is just so whitewashed, so sanitized out of that history. And I wanted to make sure that I was telling the story through the lens of this is a like the the way that we talk about feminism in this country and the mainstream way we talk about feminism in this country is is white feminism and white feminism today, corporate feminism, bourgeois feminism, capitalist feminism, that all has its origins in the beginning of the feminist movement and in the colonial origins and colonial maintenances of Canada. One of the questions I really wanted to wrestle with was where does this history then fit in to this moment that we exist today where there is no history? Now, what do I mean when I say there is no history? Without an overarching movement, and also more broadly than just feminism, we exist in this world where everything seems to be happening for the first time. We're, we're still achieving first this and first that, and there's very little recognition of what's come before and the way that what's come before has influenced the present. And so in feminism, this looks like rediscussing, rehashing arguments that have been had for decades, but in complete absence of the knowledge of what came before. The way that social media has changed our minds to constantly be updating our, our lives, our statuses, what's going on with very little callback to even our own own histories, even what happened last week or last year or five years ago or 10 years ago, has really transformed our relationship with the present. And so for feminists, we have to think very hard about what the movements used to look like and what movements today look like and what we're missing from the movements of the past and what we can leave in the past. We should really reflect on questions like, what is the connection between the famous five and a hashtag? <laughs> or what is the connection between the, the history of white feminism and the ways in which white feminism drove mainstream feminism in Canada for so long? What's that connection between that and the, the digital age? And I, I don't know if I achieved tying that, that thread. And this is not a chapter that is solely focused on white supremacy. That it, When I first started conceiving of this chapter, it was actually... Um, chapters one and two were were together. I put those two chapters together, and and I'm going to go through the chapters and explain why that was. But but the 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 way in which white supremacy manifests itself in the feminist movement, uh, it, it it goes right to the beginning. It, grow, it goes right to the start, and um and so this episode is going to talk about. Who were the, the women that were ignored? Uh, how did the feminist movement, the formal feminist movement in this country come to be? And, and how did the bourgeois white supremacist origins of the first wave of feminism influence how we understand feminism to exist in Canada and how it operated for decades thereafter? I'm fascinated by the way in which white feminists in Canada don't 
talk enough about the connection between the role of women in colonial Canada being directly tied to the colonial project. Now, when I say white feminists, I'm thinking about all of those activists who consistently refuse or are unable to or whatever tie uh, questions of violence, for example, to violence in the state or uh, looking at the disproportionate amount of violence that racialized women, especially indigenous women, experience versus, quote unquote, all women or more specifically white women. It's movements for reproductive justice that don't ring the alarm bell and instantly mobilize when story after story after story comes out of Indigenous women being sterilized. There's also ways that history has been told and and white feminists who have erased the role of racialized feminists throughout the, the telling of these histories. Oftentimes, childcare becomes the de facto issue or abortion becomes the de facto issue. And there's no attention paid to placing racialized women at the center of analyses in the way that we talk about these issues. Instead, they get turned into economic arguments or arguments for working women or whatever. Um, And the absence to do that deliberately and specifically continues to whitewash feminism in this country. And for white women, who get involved in feminism or feminist politics or whatever, it becomes very difficult for us to be able to see this unless we're actively seeking it out, which, of course, everybody should be actively seeking this out. But education does have to start somewhere. And so it is very important for us to look at the history and look at the ways in which the the, the experiences, the voices, the activism and the work of racialized feminists is so often erased or inadequately told. And so I started this chapter talking about that. And I think it's so important because oftentimes there's these debates and, and the debates have happened around in Quebec around, you know, so-called religious accommodation and whether or not uh, feminists should be pro or, or against hijab. And I'm going to talk about that in, in, in future episodes. But there's a tension that is created by white feminists to look at race as being separate or an add-on or not exactly the core issue, even if everybody agrees that it's important, even if everybody agrees that feminists need to be anti-racist, there's always that kind of block in a lot of feminist discussion that happens, especially mainstream feminist discussion, of course, that happens where it doesn't go far enough in the analysis and understanding that that the entire role of white women within the society is based on colonialism and the colonial project. And so I'm going to read how this chapter starts. I go all the way back to the founding of modern Canada and the importation of women from France. (laughs) So here we go. As a colonial nation, Canada was built on top of complex and sophisticated societies in which women's roles were starkly different than what exists today. Rigid and oppressive gender roles helped the colony to feed itself and thrive, and women were expected to take care of the family and home while men did the serious work. The famous Fille de Roi, 764 young French women who were shipped to Canada to populate the New World, would have about 4,500 children and form the basis of Quebec's society. Their last names remain common today in Quebec. White women's role in the new colony was that of birther and caregiver, and just as men were imported to North America to lay claim on the land through their work, 
women were imported to populate the new country to supplant nations that had lived here for time immemorial. If we consider this is the origin of how Canada was founded, and obviously the history of Canada, the colonial history of Canada, talking about explorers and and, and settling the new colonies, it, it always passes through discussions of men. And so the, there's this like feminist tendency sometimes to be like, well, what about the women? What about the women, right? And then you're like, oh, but the women were actually doing very good things either. They're participating in this colonial project too. And it's like, ooh, right, of course. But if we don't understand that from the start, the reason why women were subjugated, forced into having as many children as they could, especially in Quebec, um, forced to do homework and domesticated work, the reason for that was the sustainability of Canada as a colony. When we ignore that, it's easy for white women to then, you know, fight for our rights, fight for more access to the rights that white men have. And we risk completely ignoring our role, continued role, our historical role in ongoing colonization. And until white women can figure that piece out collectively, the the mainstream feminist movement, dominated still by white voices, will always have racism, white supremacy embedded within it. And so to start a chapter on history, I thought it was very, very important to go all the way back to remind ourselves of that origin, of those colonial origins, of our colonial present, and to make those connections between how it was, why it was, and how it is, and why it is today. Because I did not write a history of the feminist movement, I decided to look instead at different moments in history where feminism, where feminists were around, but not necessarily playing a role as a movement. Because we know the stories of, as I said, the famous five of Emily Murphy of fighting for, for suffrage. We also kind of know the stories of Emily Murphy fighting against uh, drug use and advocating for racist drug prohibition uh, laws, which of course are uh, some of them still in place today. But uh, anyway, they form the, the basis of our racist drug enforcement policies today. And we often don't talk about class either. And of course, the early suffragettes, the, the earliest people organizing women in this country, white women in this country, were extremely wealthy. In fact, the first national organization of women was founded by the wife of the governor general who had started chapters all over the world and was trying to create some sort of global women sisterhood uh, with these chapters of, of federations of women. And when she came to Canada, when her husband became governor general, uh, her name was Lady Aberdeen, the, there were women activists who, who, who encouraged her to also found something in Canada. And Lady Aberdeen talks about how important it was, even in the late 1800s, to bring women together in this country, which I thought was very interesting because, you know, we're talking about a time where coming together is even more difficult and more expensive. But even then, she talks about how important it was to gather people together, to build relationships, to be able to start this new organization. While I, I think that there's a whole bunch of problems with the way that that organization was structured and how Lady, Lady Aberdeen, like the literal <laughs> wife of the Queen's representative in Canada, being the person to found these things, I do think it has lessons for us today. Of course, it is important to, to meet each other across regions because uh, there are so many regional differences in Canada that get erased and we forget about them until you get into a room and you're like, whoa, folks from... Regina are really different <laughs> from me from southern Ontario. 
So I, I thought that that was an interesting lesson to take. But in the book, I talk about a couple of important figures. And one of those important figures is Marianne Shad. Marianne Shad was the first woman publisher of a newspaper in Canada, the first black woman publisher of a newspaper in North America. And her newspaper, which was called Provincial Freeman, became a really critical outlet for uh, people fleeing from the United States from slavery into Canada uh, about their stories. I really suggest if you've got some time that you look up the Provincial Freeman. Shad started publishing the newspaper in 1853, and there you can actually find digital copies online of it. And it is so fascinating. She often wrote anonymously to hide the role she played as a woman leading the masthead. By the time the paper folded in 1860, Shad didn't stay in Canada. She ended up going back to the United States where she went to Howard University to study law and she became one of the first black women to have a, a law degree in the United States. Um, Shad often convinced white women's organizations to take up the plight of freed slaves who were living in Canada. And I thought that was a really interesting example of the feminist movement, the origins of it in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, are white women organizing, often through church organizations or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and Shad sees these women as a possibility to try and promote the issue that was closest to her heart, which was supporting freed slaves in Canada. Around the same time, there was a lot of, of labor organizing that was happening. And women were involved with that too. I mean, of course, these are still patriarchal organizations. And so by and large, the leadership were male. But I, I talk in the book about the role that women played within an organization called the Knights of Labor, which was based all across North America and was organizing workers to try and fight for things like uh, the eight-hour workday, right? Really basic labor um, ra labor struggles that helped to lay the foundation for the for the 1900s and and labor relations. And so, in the book, I write about how there was a, a newspaper article from a from a newspaper called the London Advertiser from London, Ontario, in 1886 that talked about the way in which women were working within the, the, the Knights of Labor uh, to, to try and organize other women and to also to become radical, to become political. Um, and so the report from the London Advertiser uh, said that, quote, members of the order raised their hands to heaven and pledged themselves that wherever women were employed, they would demand equal pay for equal work without regard to sex whatsoever. And then I quote uh, research done by Susan Levine about the reading lists provided by the Knights of Labor. She, she writes that alongside Karl Marx, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Charles Dar Darwin, quote, included books on the women question, such as August Babel's Women in Socialism, Margaret Fuller's Women in the 19th Century and the feminist lectures of Lily Devereux Blake. It's so interesting. Uh, she goes on to explain that the reading lists were shared among women activists as a way to break across the isolation of domestic life and also included other artic articles that you would imagine would be in a women's magazine, like advice on raising children or cleaning clothes or, or whatever. But what I thought was so interesting is that there was a, an individual uh, who comes out of London, Ontario, named Elizabeth Rogers. She's an immigrant, and she uh, becomes the first district master workman 
in North America in 1886. She had come from Ireland and was raised in London, Ontario, where she met her husband through union organizing. And uh, they permanently settled in Chicago, where she was elected that role. And I had never heard of Elizabeth Rogers, and I'd not really thought too much about the about the feminist side of, of labor organizing. Um, of, of course, because the Knights of Labor had a lot of uh, problems with it as well. You know, you can, in the, what I had just read, they raised their fists and pled, pledged to, to, like, to heaven and pledged, right? Like, there, there was a lot of, um, of, of undertones of, of, of Christian supremacy or whatever. But it is very interesting to to think that we don't in Canada include women like Marianne Shad, like Elizabeth Rogers, who are doing organizing in different ways that are not deemed that, that were not deemed and that to this day are not deemed as this this was feminist organizing in the 1800s in Canada. Instead, it, it's it's hived off and and the the famous five take their place. So I hope that, you know, we, we all need to be really critical about how history is told and, and, and repackaged to us. I start the chapter by talking about the Heritage Minutes, and I can only think of five Heritage Minutes, like the classic ones from the early 90s that featured women. And I, I went back to the five uh, episodes that featured women, and it, and they're all like a caricature. They're, 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 they're all so problematic. It's like you have the, the woman's school teacher who's celebrated for educating the whole country, except she is, is celebrated in the clip for teaching a, a guy's kid to read by using passages of the Bible. So a, a reminder that the education system is, 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 was, was Christo-supremist, rooted in whiteness and Christianity, and it was women who were the handmaidens of, of this educational system, right? Of course, there's Emily Murphy, who I've already mentioned. There's Laura Secord, who you know, juries out on, on how much of the story around Laura Secord is actually true. Uh, but she gets credited with saving Canada from the United States when it was actually Mohawk warriors who did the work, right? Like this woman apparently saved everybody because she like alerted them. But no, the actual work was not done by her. It was done by Mohawk warriors. So again, you have a white woman who's taken the place of indigenous people in the story of what happened. Um, and, and one of the, 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 the clips that I that is, you know, so famous is Jenny Trout and, and Emily Stowe, two of the earliest uh, students of medicine in Canada. And, you know, they're mocked for studying uh, for studying medicine they're at the university of toronto and this the, the heritage minute has this like climax where where uh the women walk out of class because they're being just mocked relentlessly and then the the voiceover comes in you know they they go on to become doctors or whatever but of course it doesn't mention that jenny trout uh immigrant woman who's chronically disabled ended up having to leave the University of Toronto. She couldn't finish her medical degree. They made it too hard for her. And so she left to the United States where she uh, did finish her medical degree and became a doctor and and practiced there. So all of these ways in which history is whitewashed is is really fascinating. We need to be, you know, very critical of, uh, of, of the story of early feminism in this country. For me, the, the, the story starts, though, more around the status of women in Canada and the Royal Commission on the Status of Women. So I explain what the Royal Commission was, how it started, the, 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 the activists that managed to convince the government to do this, this, this project. But it, you know, in 1969, the Royal Commission releases its report, and it's a very impressive study on what needs to change for the status of women in Canada. And through that report, the reason was given to feminists in, in Canada to start organizing in a different way. It helped to coalesce 
organizing that was already happening in different pockets all across Canada into something that uh, could actually target demands because the Royal Commission made hundreds of demands on how to improve the status of women in Canada. And so that's, that triggered the creation of Status of Women Canada groups all across this country. And those groups were really important because they created the space for feminists to come together, identify their targets, whether or not they were operating municipally or they were operating provincially, and and say, we're going to fight for these changes that were all made by the the Status of Women Canada report, and we're going to do so in a systematic way. Now, at the same time, Pierre Trudeau is the prime minister, and he creates this really amazing program where people could apply for project-based funding. $100 a week uh, would be the salary, and then you could do pretty much whatever you wanted with that money. And and the program, was, as you can imagine, was disparaged by many, many people. But it was a shot in the arm of adrenaline for feminist activism because all of a sudden, projects were being funded through salaries and what would become many different kinds of services for uh, for for women in Canada have their origins in this in this money. In this chapter, I rely a lot on um, Ten Thousand Roses" by by Judy Rebick, which is a book that I mentioned in the last episode, but also the book "Runaway Wives and Rogue Feminists" by Margot Goodhand. And her, book is a history of this period of time, how feminists created childcare and they created shelters and they created services for themselves, all trying to make life better for, for, for women in this country. Margot writes that from 1971 until 1973, when the program started to wind down, its impact was impressive. It gave life to a whole host of new services organized by feminists. And she writes, Not surprisingly, dozens of desperately needed childcare centers were created and funded by LIP grants across the country. Grants were given to daycare centers, women's drop-in centers, and bookstores and crisis lines, places where the women's movement grew and flourished. And this is where we start to see the modern feminist movement emerge. These services take on a life of their own. There's management required in them. There's funding that's required to to find them, to operate. Some of the services uh, actually help to to, to justify the creation of of broad systems, specifically, you know, the Quebec's uh, childcare system. So when it became a a, a province-wide system, you already had these services already in place, right, obviously. And that coincides with the creation of the National Action Committee and the Status of Women Canada, NAC, and the rise of NAC in terms of membership, in terms of sophistication, and in terms of capacity. And so the 1970s becomes this heyday of feminist organizing. You have an influx of women into the labor market, mostly in public sector work, massive union drives happening throughout the 1970s, especially in the public sector. So women are also entering the labor movement like never before. And this is what we call the second wave of feminism. You can read more about NAC and the debates inside of the organization, uh, the the tensions between radical Marxists and conservatives, because it was a really broad tent uh, group of of people. Um, It's all in chapter one of Take Back the Fight. But 
What's interesting is Knack then chugs along, 1980s, chugs along, plays really pivotal roles in discussions about Canada's constitution, uh, starts to help to, you know, mobilize feminists uh, for another decade in the 1980s, just as neoliberalism starts to to become the status quo political orientation in this country, Knack ascends in its capacity and in, in its size. However, writer and poet Dion Brand talks about how organizing in the 1980s coincided with a tendency to make social movements middle class. And and you can see that, of course, like by, by you know, mid-1980, if a childcare center has been operating for 10 years or a drop-in center has been operating for 10 years, there's a professionalization that often comes with it for a variety of reasons and variety of pressures. And that professionalization then, you know, starts to become how feminists organize and orient themselves and importantly the the issues that they choose and so she she wrote that that this process was something that other left-wing people feminists were very weary of and so here is uh dion brand's words most of the issues the women's movement took up were representative of middle-class white women and we didn't feel part of that this is when we formed the black women's collective as a radical black feminist group We had lots of discussions about politics and decided to work within the women's movement and others. Dion Brand's words there uh, were echoed to a T by Diem LaFortune, who's another voice that appears in my book and who's a feminist activist, recently uh, ran for the Green Party in Toronto. Uh, And so she was around these debates and and I had a conversation with her while I was writing the book about what she remembers from from that time and and. For her, it was encapsulated in how the feminist movement oriented around abortion rights and how by the time abortion was won, which, of course, was a massive struggle, a struggle that I talk about a little bit in this book. And, of course, there's a lot of other great writing about that, too. But a struggle that when it when it culminated in its victory by striking down abortion laws in this country in 1988, a lot of feminists were like, wow, our work here is done. We are finished. We won. And, and whether or not they actually walked away or, or the mood shifted or because this massive campaign held so much of the glue of the national struggle together, there was certainly a feeling that now that abortion is not illegal anymore, the feminist movement has had this massive victory and we've won. Except there were so many voices, so many black voices and indigenous voices, poor women's voices and queer voices saying, wait, 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 like that, that's, that's an important victory. But what about all of these other issues? What about the plight of Caribbean women caregivers who are coming to Canada and who are facing deportation? When are we going to make immigrant women's issues the front and center of what we do? Or when are we going to listen to what poor women are talking about, you know, getting access to abortion? Like, what about just access to medical care at all or being respected or having access to housing? You start to see this tension arise in the 1990s within NAC, where there's the mainstream white orientation of what these issues are, should be, and the pressure from groups working within NAC and outside of NAC to put pressure on the organization to, to take these issues seriously. The year after the Morgenthaler decision was, was decided, so 1989, There's more and more attention put to the need for feminists to operate within an intersectional lens. And 
that was articulated most clearly by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw. And so I'm going to read from Crenshaw and how she explains the need for intersectional approaches to feminist organizing to ensure that not only are all women able to be represented and properly represented within the feminist movement, but to make sure that the issues that the movement takes on are also representative. And so here's Crenshaw's words. Black women are sometimes excluded from feminist theory and anti-racist policy discourse because both are predicated on a discrete set of experiences that often does not accurately reflect the interaction of race and gender. These problems of exclusion cannot be solved simply by including black women within an already established analytical structure. Because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated. Crenshaw was operating in the United States, but these ideas obviously are crossing borders and they're crossing uh, meeting discussion groups uh, and, and influencing how people are thinking about organizing in general and organizing specifically in Canada. Now at NAC, they elect the first racialized president, Sanera Tabani. She was elected in 1993. So by 1993, discussions around intersectionality are, they're not mainstream, but they're certainly growing and they're certainly uh, there. And, you know, when you read 10,000 Roses, you, you get the sense that there were definitely people that thought race is not the core issue for feminists. Feminists are women's issues. And race is kind of, separate. It's it's not exactly a feminist issue. And, you know, of course, you're, you're wa watching me, hearing me putting air quotes all over the place as I'm saying these things. Sonera Tobani gets elected and doesn't have the kind of support that she needs to be successful as the NAC president, while at the same time facing incredible attacks from elected representatives who saw her as a threat and who wanted to get rid of NAC entirely. Because at this point, NAC is now still, you know, getting government funding, right? And so in 10,000 Roses, Tobani says... Many white women are just not convinced that women of color are capable. As long as the women's movement is not able to change that, we will continue to fight and have these battles. And Rebic also quotes Jackie Larkin, who is a member of the executive when Tobani was elected. And, and Larkin says, quote, if I could go back, I would be much more willing to take responsibility for making it work. If there had been a couple of white women committed to making Sonera's presidency work, that might have made a huge difference. Not long after NAC loses its core funding, uh, then it like sh the, the status of Women Canada shifts to a grants and project based system, which I will talk a little bit about in future episodes. And uh, then just kind of chugs along until it doesn't exist anymore in the mid in the mid 2000s. That's the next episode. And you can you can hear how I how, how I would have written this chapter and the next chapter together because these issues are all, you know, very together. But it really is important to untie the questions of race and racism, white supremacy within the feminist movement, how it manifested itself throughout the history of the feminist movement and how uh, it influences still to this day feminism and feminist action. At the end of this chapter, I quote Verna St. Denis, who was one of the most amazing professors that I had. She's a professor uh, at the University of Saskatchewan in the Education Department. And in the foreword of her 2017 book called Feminism is for Everybody, Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, 
She writes, Colonization has involved the appropriation of sovereignty, lands, resources, and agency, and has included the imposition of Western and Christian patriarchy on Aboriginal people. She then goes on to quote Sarah Gamble's introduction to the Rutledge Dictionary of Feminism and Post-Feminism about the need to continuously debate, to redefine and redefine and redefine what feminism is for the moment in which feminists are operating. And so here's her quoting Sarah Gamble. Exactly what equality for women entails, the means by which it is to be achieved, even the exact nature of the obstacles it faces, are all disputed issues. To read feminism's history, therefore, is to uncover a record of debates, schisms, and differing viewpoints. As I said at the start of the show, this chapter was originally part of the same chapter with chapter two. And the reason for that is because trying to tie off history and white supremacy within the mainstream women's movement can't actually be done with a timeline. There was other forces that were also putting pressure on NAC and other kinds of left-wing social movement organizing that would be crushed by what was coming, which was this massive structural shift that changed the interaction between social movements and the state. So it's hard to talk about what this, what we learn from history today without going on to the next episode. But I do think that there are some really key things that we need to resist when thinking about or hearing about feminism, its role in Canadian politics historically, and then its role in Canadian politics today. First of all, that women have always been involved with politics, uh, certainly not at the same level as white men. But white women have played a very important role for the entirety of history. And just because that role has been erased doesn't mean that they weren't there. And so when we're fighting for things like representation, having more women elected to government, for example, it is not in and of itself enough to change anything because women have always been there. They may not have had the positions of importance or the positions of leadership, but women have been there and they've just been erased from what we understand of history. And the second thing that's very important is this threat of white supremacy. And it, it goes right to the core of, of living in a colonial nation like Canada and right up to the top of, of the kind of women that can succeed, the kind of movements that are still able to organize today and the issues that those movements decide to take on. And so I hope that, that when you're listening to this, you can think of all of the ways in which white supremacy still permeates itself throughout organizing currently still permeates itself throughout different kinds of organizing, but that oftentimes we don't necessarily see it in that way or we don't see it instantly. And by we, I mean white people. You know, think of the words of the representatives from NAC who look back and say, if only I had been more committed to Sonera Tobani's presidency, I could have maybe made a more positive difference. How many examples can you think of in organizing that you've been involved in where white supremacy has played a role in making the organizing less effective, making a, an environment toxic, pushing out racialized activists, or causing some other kind of harm that perhaps at the time you didn't realize was happening? Or maybe, of course, you realized it was happening and you were the one that was trying to get other people to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> we have to continuously reevaluate the the ways in which we organize, keeping in mind that 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 history is never far from where we are, and that if we're not actively resisting things like white supremacy, then we will continue to fall into white supremacy's 
traps. The final thing that I want to leave you with for this episode is this. The history of the feminist movement in Canada, and indeed the history of feminism all over the world, is one of growth and collapse, growth and collapse. And and there's something that I learned when I came to Quebec that was always seen as being uh, bad. It was always seen as something that we need to avoid in English Canada, which is the process of collapse and reorganization of whatever kind of structures that we might have. When an organization lives out past its reason to exist, there is nothing wrong with that organization ceasing to exist and in fighting for the self-preservation of the organization as the sole reason to exist is never healthy and it's never a positive contribution to the left in general. There are so many examples of this currently. And for new activists, it can be very frustrating because trying to get involved with organizations where leadership might all come from the same generation or maybe leadership has been in place for many, many years and it's and you don't feel like you belong, you don't feel like you can challenge people, you don't feel like you've got the credibility or experience to be able to get yourself involved. It can be very isolating and very disenfranchising. Sometimes our organizations need to go away and sometimes movements must collapse. And the most important thing is not the fact that it collapses, but what is there to take its place. If there is nothing there, if there is a vacuum of movement organizing, just like was the case with the feminist movement in the 1990s and 2000s, and I would argue onward till today, then that is bad. Then that's, then that's bad because that creates a vacuum that can be easily filled by conservatives and liberals, by corporations, and by people that are seeking to profit off of movement slogans and ideas that can be popularly mass, mass marketed and, 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 and profited off of. And so when we're, when we're thinking about the life cycle of our organizing, things rise and fall all the time and we are connected to history and we are connected to those waves just by being people who are active within the same society and so when we have an organization that needs to collapse that has has fulfilled its use that people are saying it's too stale we can't get out of whatever rut that we're in maybe we should think about going home, regrouping and finding new ways of organizing ourselves and pushing new structures forward. Well, that's your episode for this week. Take Back the Fight, the podcast is written, produced, hosted and edited by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me, except for the outro, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you like what you hear, make sure that you share this podcast with your friends, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishers, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can check out other podcasts on the network by visiting www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Highest above, I've had about enough. There's too much to discuss. Lost trust, but I'm not giving up. Hear this beat, put you in the high seat, and make you nervous. Me? I'm earnest. I bring the heat to a tea, guaranteed. Garam chai in my thermos.